Can you imagine that moment? To see Jesus alive when it looked like all hope was lost. What a wonderful moment. It's recorded in John's Gospel. We're in Luke's Gospel today, and so if you're still in that place, I would invite you to look at this wonderful chapter with me. The, 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 uh, the writer of this Gospel, Luke, presents us in chapter 24 with three pictures, three scenes, all having to do with the resurrected Christ. And each of these scenes follows the same pattern. There's confusion, there's a challenge, there's teaching, and then finally, witness. The first scene in Luke 24 shows us the women in conversation with the angels at the empty tomb. The second scene reveals the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burning, the Bible says, as they listened to Christ explain the Old Testament scriptures to them. And in the third scene, our text this morning, we see Jesus suddenly standing in the middle of his astonished disciples on Easter evening. And as we look closer at this third scene this morning, we see that the confusion is now bordering on chaos. The 11 have gathered behind closed doors in Jerusalem. We know that John's gospel tells us in chapter 20, verse 19, the apostle Peter had amazed this group by relating to them that he had personally seen the risen Lord. This is followed by the entrance of the couple from the Emmaus Road with their reports of their astonishing encounter with the Lord Jesus, their burning hearts, the exciting moment of recognition when he broke the bread in their home. And now Jesus appears before them himself. Notice if you're taking notes this morning, a four simple point outline. The first is confusion. Look at the confusion in verses 36 and 37. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. They had listened to Peter's report. They continued listening to the couple from Emmaus. But with the sudden appearance of Jesus in that room, their eyes must have bulged, their skin must have crawled as they saw what looked to be a ghost. It was Jesus' voice that greeted them. Peace to you. Peace on earth, you may remember, had been announced at the coming of Jesus all the way back in chapter 2 and verse 14. Peace on earth the angels sang at his birth. But these disciples did not have much peace in their hearts, only shocking disbelief. These were the hand-picked apostles. And verse 25 tells us that they were as foolish and slow of heart as that Emmaus disciples had been. They're, they're just as confused 
as that couple on the road to Emmaus. Notice the challenge in verse 38 to 43. Jesus rebukes them, and it takes the form of a disappointed question, followed by an invitation to examine themselves. Look what he says. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm not a ghost. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. After this, nobody could argue that they had seen a ghost. They felt for themselves solid flesh over hard bones. Some of them may have even touched the open wounds. Jesus was physically there. It was his earthly body, but raised to a higher position. The physical resurrection was a fact. And in moments... The apostles' condition had become one of a positive rather than negative disbelief. Look what it says in verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy (laughs) and were marveling. They They were in this wacky state of being giddy and yet still disbelieving what they're seeing. Kind of like, uh, football fans who, whose team just scored as the time runs out to win the game. The, the literal wording here in the New Testament, the Greek language would go like this. They being unbelieving from joy and amazement. Jesus then delivers the final blow to their doubts. Look what he says, verse 41. He said to them, have you any, have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This was not the only time that Jesus did this. After the resurrection, he appeared to them for a a period of over 40 days and occasionally ate with them. We read from Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Peter told Cornelius over in Acts chapter 10 that we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Acts 10, 39-41. After this, none of the eleven ever again doubted the reality of the resurrection. In the following moments, Jesus had their attention now, as he perhaps had never had it before. This was a critical time because he is going to now teach them the essentials of the gospel and what their mission would be going forward. So notice thirdly, the teaching of the Lord Jesus, verses 44 to 47. Jesus begins to instruct them. And we want to remember that all three of these scenes in Luke 24 focus on God's word for the instruction. 
First, you remember the angels at the tomb with the ladies, uh, they, they um, turned the ladies' attention back to Jesus' own words. Uh, back in chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, the words of Jesus. The angels pointed them back to his words. Next, Christ scolded those discouraged people on the road to Emmaus. Look at verse 25 to 27. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Where did Jesus turn? To the Old Testament. And now in the third picture in Jerusalem, he explains what has just happened. His death and his resurrection again in the context of the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. One commentator named Leon Morris wrote this, The solemn division of Scripture into the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. The Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear its witness to Jesus. And again, we must understand that one of the reasons Jesus taught them from Scripture was that so they would not rest their belief in his resurrection only on their personal experience. I was in a room with Jesus. Oh, sure you were. He was not interested in the leaven becoming an elite group with special knowledge of God. He wanted their faith not to be rested simply on a miracle. He wanted it grounded in their experience of his resurrection on the massive testimony and perspective of Scripture. Consider this, brothers and sisters. It is possible to actually believe in the resurrection and not believe in Christ. This is what Jesus had warned earlier back in Luke 16 in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that? Let me read you Luke 16.31. You'll know this verse. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus' passion, his resurrection, only makes sense 
saving sense in the beautiful context of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, this encounter was undoubtedly the ultimate teachable moment in all of history. Jesus would have seated himself, taking the traditional posture of a teacher, and as he, as he gestured in the, in the candlelit room, his nail-pierced hands emphasizing his points, there's no wandering minds in this room. Can you imagine sitting there listening to him? There's, there's no Eutychus falling asleep on the windowsill and falling out of the window because of the boredom. Not a chance. His teaching is also being enhanced by illumination, spiritual help. Look at what verse 45 says. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. They had been his devoted followers all the way through. But a spiritual veil had covered their understanding so that at least on two occasions when he told about his death that was coming, we read over in Luke chapter 9, verse 45, they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They didn't get it because they were kept from getting it. Again, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 34, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. But on Easter night, the blinders are removed as the Holy Spirit opens their minds to understand, to see. What an amazing combination. Jesus giving the Scriptures and giving the understanding along with it. And that's exactly what still happens today, brothers and sisters. What they learned that night, and in the next 40 days, their other conversations with the Lord Jesus, became the substance of what they would preach and teach all over the known world. What eventually would be written down and become the New Testament. I want to look at each of these parts to help you see what it is that Jesus is referring to when he says the 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 law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all speak about me. I want you to see it for yourselves so that the weight of the evidence of Scripture is impressed on your heart today. And perhaps those of you who may be here who aren't followers of Jesus, perhaps you're here because a loved one was getting baptized today, or perhaps you're here because Easter seems to be a good time to go find a church and sit in it. If you are not a regular, daily, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear the weight of Scripture, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. I want you to see the plan of God from the very beginning 
And then we will pray as Christians. We will pray that Jesus will open your minds today so that you can see it and understand it and love Him as we love Him. I want you to notice a couple of different kinds of instruction that Jesus gives to these men from the Old Testament. The first is gospel instruction. Gospel instruction. He said to them in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now we understand from this that their preaching of the gospel was always to be framed by the rich background of Old Testament exposition. The bringing out of the instruction from the Old Testament. Paul said that, by the way, exactly in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember these famous verses? Verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, Paul writes, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures. That was all they had at this point. And that He was buried, and that He was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now from this, we must also understand the Gospel is only fully preached when it's set in the context of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Think about this with me for a few moments this morning. Where do we find the gospel of Christ in the law? You ever have a hard time finding the gospel in the law? You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Most clearly, we see his sufferings in the great institutions and events of the law. According to Exodus chapter 24, the old covenant was launched on a sea of blood from all the sacrifice of animals which Moses doused on the altar. In the following centuries that would come after the law, oceans of blood flowed on Jewish altars from suffering animals, causing just an external ceremonial cleansing of those who offered those sacrifices. These sacrifices, over all those years, all that shedding of blood, pointed to and was fulfilled by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, by the way, I think that was Luke, I know people have lots of opinions on that, but I think it was Luke that wrote Hebrews as well. He explained this so well in in the book of Hebrews. Listen, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if if all of that blood, if all of that sacrifice sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish, no sin, to God, 
How much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The daily sacrifices pointed to and begged for the ultimate atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In a similar way, the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 prophesied of Christ's sufferings. Just before his death, the disciples were in the upper room and Jesus made it very clear that he was the Passover lamb as he prepared to eat this last supper with them in that room. He said in Luke 22, just a couple pages back, 15 and 16, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus then fulfilled the Passover to the letter. He was a male in his prime Without any defect, that was the qualifications of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12.5. He, in his sacrificial process, he did not have any of his bones broken. That was a requirement. Exodus 12.46, we learned that that was fulfilled. John 19.36. And now, just as faith in the blood of the Passover lamb delivered the Israelites from death that night in Egypt... All those years ago, now faith in Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, brings life. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ is our Passover. In in this connection, the the whole tabernacle spoke of Christ. The most important location in the tabernacle was the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood was sprinkled once a year, picturing Christ's atoning work. It's a fact that the New Testament word, you guys hear these fancy words sometimes, right? Like propitiation, right? That big New Testament word. That word comes from the root word for mercy seat which is what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a connection. In fact, John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 2, 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation, the mercy seat, the covering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Paul said, Romans 3.25, that Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation. By his blood. Jesus is both the place of atonement and the blood of the atonement. Christ's sufferings are all over the law. There's even a hint of resurrection in the law. Did you know that? Luke records in chapter 20 that Christ embarrassed the resurrection-denying Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. He embarrassed them by showing that in Exodus 3, 6, where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, proves the idea of resurrection because God would not say, I am, present tense, 
the God of those deceased patriarchs unless they were still living. That's what Jesus told them. And Peter alluded to this in his sermon in Acts chapter 3 and verse 13. He proclaimed the resurrection. He says, you, speaking to the Jewish people, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Peter saw that that same resurrection power that raised the patriarchs to life after death raised Jesus, who was the author of life. Notice the prophets for a moment, too. Where is the gospel found in the prophets? Well, one of the clearest places of Christ's sufferings in the prophets, as you all probably know, is Isaiah 53. What a precious chapter, right? The text that Jesus directed his disciples to in the upper room when he referred to its final verse, indicating that he himself was numbered with the transgressors. He's directing their attention to the fact that every line of that chapter refers to him, to Jesus, as the ultimate suffering servant. Isaiah 53 drips with the passion of Jesus Christ. Not only do the prophets detail Christ's suffering, they also speak of his resurrection. Did you know that? On the third day. In verse 46, Luke was apparently alluding to Hosea 6.2. So look at verse 46 and look at that while I read Hosea 6.2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That prophecy was given to sinful Israel, but there was nothing in their history that corresponds to it. Nothing. Except that when Christ rose from the dead on the third day, he raised with himself believing Israel. The prophecy plainly points to Christ. Christ's body lay in the tomb for two days, and on the third day, he rose again. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. What about the Psalms? Well, no doubt the Gospel was in the Law and the Prophets, and in the Psalms as well. Psalm 22 is the classic text. It gives a technical description of a person dying of crucifixion before the cross was even invented. But even more, it perfectly describes Jesus' experience even to the details of the soldiers gambling over his clothing. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. The Psalms also teach the resurrection, brothers and sisters. Peter explained in his sermon at Pentecost, he quoted... Psalm 16, 8 through 11 in his sermon. Here's what the psalm says. Or here's what, here's what Peter said in Acts 2. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For... You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Then Peter went on in his sermon to explain that David did not fulfill the prophecy because David's bones were still in his grave in this tomb to that day. But Christ did fulfill it because he rose before decomposition even started. Here's what he said, Acts 2.29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the theme of the entire Scriptures. As the law was opened, their hearts burned. As the prophets came alive, those flames rose higher. As the Psalms entered the picture, their hearts became passionate, roaring furnaces. They became men of the Gospel. There was Gospel instruction. And then quickly, notice also, there was mission instruction as well. Because it didn't stop there. Look in our text here, Luke 24, 47. He showed them that world missions is taught also throughout the Scripture. Verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Back to the law. The law foretold this right at the beginning of the Jewish nation. God said to Abraham, listen to this, Genesis 12, and I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise to Abram was accomplished, fulfilled through his ultimate seed, Jesus Christ. Paul explains this in Galatians 3, 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Christ is the heir and the mediator of the promise made to Abraham. And the blessing that comes through Jesus goes out to all nations, including, thank God, Gentiles, like most of us, as they come to Jesus and are incorporated into his body. Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The nations of the earth are blessed with the spiritual riches of Abraham when believers like you and I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Missions also found in the prophets. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas explain why they are turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. And they quote from Isaiah 49, verse 6. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is Acts 13, 47 and 48, the words of Paul and Barnabas. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Wouldn't you as well? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All Christ's followers, you and I, who claim to follow Jesus, all of you younger and older folks who were baptized in this tank today, who say, I am going to follow Jesus with my life. You are charged to bring light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. It is part of your responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the Psalms. Psalm 22, again, which so graphically describes Christ's suffering, ends with a statement of mission. Let me read it. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And there's five psalms in particular that declare God's salvation to the Gentiles. Psalm 96, especially verses 1 to 3, verse 7, verse 10. Psalm 97, especially verses 1 and 6. Psalm 98, especially verses 1 to 3. And Psalm 99, especially verse 103. And Psalm 100. 96, 97, 98, 99, and 100. Five psalms declaring God's salvation to you and I. That Easter night, privately locked up with the eleven, Jesus grounded the gospel and their mission in the Old Testament Scriptures. He showed that the law and the prophets and the psalms all taught his suffering, all taught his death, all taught his resurrection, all taught their mission to the world, beginning with Jerusalem, the very heartland of the Jewish faith, the place where the Son of God suffered, died, and rose again. The gospel was and is for the entire world. And so Heather Hills We are to be gospel men and women who proclaim, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Our message that we give to the world is not a philosophy. It is not even a way of life. It is the eternal good news that is based on real events that was prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah. We are, as we're learning in 1 Corinthians, we are to preach Christ and Him 
crucified. That is our message. That is our mission. And gospel people are to be mission people. The gospel demands that we share Christ everywhere and that we use our time and our resources to go to the nations. It's a matter of life and death. It is about the glory of our God. Number four, and with this we close, there was confusion, remember? And then there was instruction. And then finally, look at the witness. All three scenes of Luke 24 end with witness. The women hurried from the empty tomb to share the good news with the 11, verses 9 and 10. The couple on the road went all the way back to Jerusalem to share what had happened along the way. And here, Jesus makes it formal. Verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that promise was reiterated when Jesus ascended back into heaven in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You guys could quote this with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And brothers and sisters, when the Spirit came, what power there was. The preaching of the gospel was not advanced by the mere reciting of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. It wasn't advanced just by declaring the Scripture's fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, I can stand up here all day and preach to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and it will have no effect without the work of the Holy Spirit in your hearts. He is the one who regenerates us, makes us alive. Paul testified to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Brothers and sisters, may we be gospel people. In 2022, may we be gospel people. The world needs the gospel today as much as it has ever needed the gospel. We must not shrink back from this moment. We need to be devoted to our mission in the power and the fiery conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'll invite the praise team to come prepare for our final song. As they're coming, can I just talk to all of us as a family for a few minutes? Brothers and sisters, I long for you to see and know the truth that God has taken away your guilt and has taken away your shame and has given you eternal life and all that goes with it. I want you to know that. But the goal is not just for you to know 
that you are not guilty anymore. The goal is for you to go. To go and proclaim to everybody in Indianapolis and to people in all nations that you are not guilty anymore. It's when we realize this that we will find ourselves in the middle of fulfilling the Great Commission given to us by our Savior. I'm praying that God would help me first and all of us together to realize that Heather Hills is not intended to be a place of ministry as much as it is intended to be a base for ministry. You know what Jesus is saying in this passage? Beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, you don't stay there. You don't keep the gospel in Jerusalem. It starts there. That's your base. And from there you go out and you preach to all nations from that base. That's what the church was designed to be. Jesus was coming to abolish this idea that the church is limited to a place. Friends, this building is not the church. You are the church. Whether we meet in this building or out in a field or somewhere on the other side of the world, that's the church. And here is the power of the gospel. 2,000 years ago, there was a name, a name that caused lame people to walk. And there was a name that caused blind people to see. And there was a name that caused people who were completely against the gospel. And you may find yourself in that place this morning. You're completely against the gospel. And there is a name that can transform you into being for the gospel. Paul is a prime example, by the way. There is a name that casts demons out of people. There is a name for which people have risked their lives. And the name is still good today. The name is still powerful today. The name is the same 2,000 years later as it was then. And we have the authority of the name of Christ. We do not go out and preach in the name of our great intellectualism. We do not go out and preach in the name of our wonderful personalities. We do not go out and even preach in the name of our church. We preach in the name of Jesus Christ, and His name has power. There is not one person in the city of Indianapolis that his name cannot reach. There is not one sin that cannot be forgiven. There is not one hurt that cannot be healed by this name. And we go out in the authority of that name, the name of Jesus Christ.
If you're here this morning and you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, in just a few moments after we sing and we conclude our service, just a reminder, this is the only service today. As we conclude our time, I would encourage you just to stay. Just stay for a few minutes. Come and seek one of the pastors out. Or just turn to a Christian nearby you and say, I think God is speaking in my heart to become a follower of Jesus. And we'll be happy to open God's Word, the same Word, the same Word that the Spirit uses today and show you how you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you need assistance, we can go over to this cubicle in the corner of the sanctuary where a biblical counselor can talk to you and help you to take those first steps in following Jesus. We'd love nothing more on the day of his resurrection to see eternal life come to you.